0: This is Muslim in Plain Sight. I'm Anissa Khalifa.
1: And I'm Khadija Khalil. Join us as we look back at 20 years of the war on terror and how our world changed as we came of age. welcome. I'm Khadija. In this episode, we finally got to sit down with two of the founding members of the Qarawiyyin Project, a global initiative aimed at reviving Islamic discourse among Muslim women. Like us, Aisha and Sara are on opposite sides of the Atlantic, and like us, they experience many of the same hostilities that have besieged Muslims in the last 20 years. Unlike us, however, they never really experienced a pre-9-11 world, And we wanted to explore the experience of a generation of Muslims raised in the lap of the so-called War on Terror. We discussed the legacies of the early response of Muslim communities to 9-11 and the shape of the post-War on Terror world, how Muslim identity has been shaped by apologetics instead of creed, and indeed, whether the concept of identity is a meaningful benchmark at all for who we are or should be as Muslims. New episodes come out on Mondays every other week, if you'd like to support the show, you can make a donation by clicking the link in the description. You can also leave us a rating or write a review for the show on Apple Podcasts. Please do share your favourite episodes on social media and tell your family and friends to listen. As a final note, with just a couple of episodes to go, we're very close to wrapping up this series. Both Anissa and I would like to take the opportunity once again to thank you all for tuning in and supporting us and letting us know what these stories have meant to you. We feel it too. And it's been an incredible privilege not only to speak to our guests, but also to bring their stories to you, knowing that they're striking deep chords in all of us, in the experiences we've shared, the feelings we've felt, together and alone, and once again, in the power of bearing witness to the truth that is told to us. And now, let's settle in with Aisha and Sara of the Yin Project for an incredibly lucid sojourn into the necessity of authentic Islamic scholarship, geopolitics, and of course, our old friend, colonialism.
0: Assalamu alaikum, this is Anissa. Assalamu alaikum, this is Khadija. And we're very excited to have two guests today from the Karawin Project. Can we please have you introduced yourselves?
2: Assalamu alaikum, my name is Aisha. It's great to be here with you guys, Anissa and Khadija. Assalamu alaikum, Sara here also joining from uh, TQP and based in the US. Welcome, salam so happy to have you. Glad to be here. Thank you for having us. Alhamdulillah. alhamdulillah. This has been a long
3: time coming, subhanAllah. We tried yeah. to arrange it so many times and it <laughs> fell through. So I'm really excited that, alhamdulillah, we made it and the conversation today. Four
0: time zones. It's very challenging. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've been trying to schedule this since we started the project and now we're about to finish it. So we got there. Alhamdulillah, we got there. Alhamdulillah. So can you tell us a little bit about what the Qaraweean project is?
3: Yeah, so the Qarween Project is a website and a podcast. It's a a global initiative, alhamdulillah, that's really aimed at trying to revive Islamic discourse amongst Muslim women. So we have writers and contributors from all over the world who submit articles or appear on our podcast uh, where we try to analyse contemporary challenges from an Islamic lens. And I think that, uh, alhamdulillah, the project has been going for a few years now, but it was really started... By myself and a couple of other sisters on our team who were frustrated. And I think, you know, Sara obviously joined very early on as well, so she can <laughs> give her experience of this, but were frustrated at a lack of a space for Muslim women to come and engage in conversation on issues that they have a stake in that aren't directly women related. I think that very often we as Muslim women can get boxed in to just talking about like women in Islam. Mm -hmm. But we have so many other interests and there are so many other important things that are going on in the world, which we should talk about and think about, obviously, from an Islamic perspective and, and, and give our experiences as Muslim women. That's really important. And so we wanted to create a space where we can see women engaging and seeing themselves as actors in this history of the ummah rather than passive spectators. So that was really the kind of intention behind it all. And um, Alhamdulillah, we're still quite a small project, I think, but we've been going for a few years now. And um, it's been received really well by sisters around the world. Alhamdulillah.
0: alhamdulillah. Sara, would you like to share something about like why it's important to you?
2: Yeah, I mean, Aisha and the sisters who started this project, like really, they set like a very solid groundwork for it. Um, It was five and a half years ago. Right. Um, And then two years after y'all had already started it, I met Aisha at like an Islamic studies program that we were doing in Turkey. Um, And we were just we were engaging in a lot of those like those very fun conversations about like Islamic worldview and, uh, you know, the ummah and like identity and modernity. Then she recruited me to the project. And it was it was very refreshing because I had been involved in like Muslim community stuff locally. But this was the first time that I was having a lot of not just the same conversations but similar conversations with Muslims across the world, and it I think it opened up my like global consciousness more. And I think that that's just one of the, the keystones of the project is the international focus and the Ummah focus um, and trying to think across national boundaries and break those boundaries a bit. And you're doing
1: an amazing job. Yes, I've been catching up with the previous episodes of the podcast that I haven't. I uh, had a chance to listen to you, and you go to all the places, and I appreciate that so much. <laughs> and do we life. try? Because it is, as you say, it's very difficult to have certain conversations, and it's very difficult to have many of them with nuance. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you'll say something, and it actually will change my life. I hear those words <laughs> oh. when I go and do something else, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> so you know, good good work,
3: Masha. That is high praise, high praise indeed, SubhanAllah. and it means a lot coming from other sisters who, mashallah, are engaged in such crucial work in bringing the experiences and and reflecting on the past kind of two decades together. That's Alhamdulillah. Really, I mean, good I'll be video. I'll
1: be really frank. It's uh, exciting and terrifying to see your energy because um, we're a little older than you are. We I guess part of the reason why we're talking to you specifically is because i mean in the nicest way possible there is a generation gap like mm-hmm. where the sort of millennials who are responsible for ruining everything but
3: you're kind <laughs> <Yeah>. of really <laughs> okay i think <laughs> i really do consider myself a millennial don't don't oh, really? be in the gen z box let me <laughs> <please>, no
2: <laughs> depending on like which division you use i'm either like the youngest millennial or the oldest gen z so <laughs> yeah yeah she, she's borderline yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: i'm this with generation x except it's kind of you know uh, <laughs> (laughs) But in any case, there is a difference in the way that you experienced Mm -hmm. growing up Muslim compared to perhaps the way that we did. The main theme of of this series has been 9-11 and how it affected you growing up. So Mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about what memories you have of the day of 9-11 itself? What was it like for you to grow up in the shadow of something that you didn't experience with the kind of presence that you might have had you been a bit older? Or do you think that Perhaps you were too young for that to sort of really sink in until you were a lot older.
3: Um, I'm just a few years older than Sarah, but I think I'm also the eldest in my family. And um, alhamdulillah, my family were very politically aware. So I feel that although I am on the younger end, definitely of the millennial spectrum, as you're saying, I was very conscious of the the, the day itself. And I do actually remember the day itself. I was uh, shopping with my family. Um, for wedding clothes, actually, for a family wedding in in the US. And we were in like very, you know, Muslim dominated area. And so suddenly, you know, everybody in the shops back when shops had, you know, TV screens, because we didn't have smartphones, everybody was putting on the news. And you could see, obviously, all of the images that were coming out of New York City. And it was very shocking. Like, I remember that everybody, you know, there was this palpable energy in the air that this is not only a defining moment in history, which obviously it was, but that everybody's lives on that street and you know it was probably one of the most um, densely populated muslim areas in london at the time although now of course we know like london is 20 percent muslim but this particular area a lot of people from south asian background especially were there you know everybody's lives as we were witnessing this were about to change based on what we were seeing and i think i definitely look back on my childhood as growing up during the war on terror. And I think it's only recently that we can truly say we've entered this kind of post-war on terror era. And it's now that I look at people who are younger than me, um, you know, by a decade or so, who are teenagers now, that I see the differences between how I was at their age and the, the, the realities that they're facing. I think the other thing that was obviously hugely aware of in the media aftermath was the geopolitical element and that that dynamic uh the wars in iraq and afghanistan and i remember the the million man march that we had in london as well Mm, before the iraq war and all of the dialogue that came in around that um i think as well just the issues that we as a muslim community spoke about back then are very different to the issues that we're talking about today not that we've stopped talking about them but they're not as uh high on the agenda because some of these things have you know, ended in, in, in some way or, or some of them are just kind of on, on the back burner a little bit. Things like extraordinary renditions don't happen anymore you know definitely not as much as they were in the in, in the immediate aftermath of nine eleven, 11 Guantanamo and all of the campaigning the, there was a lot of campaigning mashallah that took place in the British Muslim community to get British citizens who were imprisoned unjustly in Guantanamo out that's ended but that was a huge issue for many many years in the UK Muslim community as I'm sure Khadija would remember as well um, that I you know hearing about imprisonment and air bases and secret prisons Figures like Dr. Afia Sidiqi, who, subhanAllah, is probably the only case that is still you know, very much enduring. Mm. All of these things were the norm for us to be aware of as elements of the war on terror. I see that that has changed a little bit, a bit of a different dynamic that we have today. But in general, I feel like the attitude of suspicion that endured after 9-11, having to constantly prove yourself. This, for me, I think growing up in it, because perhaps I was so young that I don't remember kind of the Muslim community before 9-11, this became the default Muslim discourse. And I find it very interesting now that I meet young Muslims or Muslims in different parts of the world that don't have that experience. And I see the difference. I mean, just recently, subhanAllah, this week, um, I'm in Turkey at the moment, but I've been involved in a in a project that is about giving da'wah to non-Muslims, basically to tourists that come to some of the many masajid in Turkey. Um, and so me, I'm kind of entering these conversations and I just... There's something in me that I realized, well, I I want to start by breaking the stereotypes. I want to start by talking about terrorism and, and, and women and all of these issues. And, you know, so they know that Islam is not bad because they probably think Islam is bad. And then I realized that many of these people don't actually think that. The other volunteers I'm with who are not from the West, they don't start like that because they don't have that experience that mm-hmm. I have where I need to constantly prove that mm-hmm. Islam is not
0: what people think immediately. That being like constantly on the defensive, which yeah. has become yeah. instinctive for us.
3: Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And to me, that was just, um, I don't know, <laughs> perhaps was, um, I'm still learning, I think, how much that whole period was conducive to my development and how I see the world, but how that's not actually the norm.
2: Mm-hmm. What about you, Sarah? Yeah. So the day of 9-11, I was just under four years old. So I have no recollection of the day (laughs) itself. Um, I have some like vague memory of like at some point when I was a kid, I hear the term 9-11 and I like don't know what it is. So I go home and ask my parents about it and like they explain to me what it is and everything. But I I don't remember when like this transition happened because I think I, I grew up like a like as a sheltered kid in like a very diverse community going to public school with mostly people of color. Being involved in my Muslim community, having Muslim parents who had like absolutely no qualms about our Islamic identity, weren't apologetic about it at all. And then probably when I guess I started wearing hijab in elementary school, then I started receiving all of these comments and like just like weird hatred that, you know, I naively like didn't expect. Mm. And then I, yeah, I experienced like this switch from being like, you know, carefree, thinking I'm like like the other kids in my class to then being on the defensive all the time, like you described Um, seeing myself as like the flag bearer of Islam, who's responsible for, you know, raising my hand every time it comes up in discussion in class and like correcting misconceptions about like hijab and jihad and all of the, you know, like the common apologetics issues that come up in Muslim discourse. So that was, it just was the like the water that we grew up in. Like it was, it was just like a constant thing. I didn't get to see the transition. That was something that I learned about later on. Part of it is that my, my parents are a window for me into what Muslim consciousness and discourse was before 9-11, because I think that they, mashallah, managed to maintain a degree of steadfastness that we didn't see consistently throughout the Muslim community after 9-11, where they they didn't teach us Islam through the lens of apologetics. But I learned Islam, uh, and I talked about and heard about Islam through the lens of apologetics, pretty much exclusively when it came to, you know, at the masjid and Mm. um, through community events and everything. So, yeah, I think I also... I still didn't really understand the full scope of what it meant to be in a post 9-11 era Um, until much later. I still, for a long time, I thought that, you know, we can fight Islamophobia just by being out there, by being the, you know, cool hijabi who breaks the stereotypes and teaches people that, oh, actually, we're not that bad. Um, And then it was later that I I really learned that, you know, the war on terror is actually like a global project, a heavily funded project. Um, And in some ways, like, it's just a core value of Western societies. And then like Islamophobia even though it manifests a particular way post 9/11 it predates it um, and the the techniques the tactics used against Muslims and against the Muslim community post 9/11 also predate 9/11 and were used against other communities before it yeah. so yeah that's a summary of like just I guess my mindset throughout you know the past 20 years and um, yeah. slowly coming to realize like becoming aware of my surroundings
0: So you both kind of touched on this in your answers, but like uh, one of the things that you said in your episode of um, TQP podcast, where you talked about 9-11, is that the response of Muslim community leaders in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 kind of shaped the community's discourse for the next 20 years. And we'd really like to ask you to like expand on that a little bit. Like, what do you mean by that? And could there have been a better response than what we did or was what happened sort of inevitable?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it was a very difficult situation after 9-11. And I don't think we should
0: understate that. And, you know, I wouldn't want to
3: come across as dismissive of the struggle that people in that situation have to go through. I mean, even today we see, subhanAllah, you know, Muslim figures go onto certain media platforms or on certain news channels and you know they're put on the spot about something and they don't give the best answer that they could have and you know that's a very real struggle uh, and it's very easy for us now sitting here in 2022 you know hindsight is 2020 um to be able to say this was wrong that was wrong so definitely it's not anything personal towards individuals who are involved but i think that it's important to obviously look back so that we can take lessons from how this experience was dealt with, because obviously it is still something that we do face as Muslims um, and and as communities today. So I think for me, when I look back, understandably, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, there was a lot of condemnation that happened. And I think that that was needed and it was natural. And even today, when incidents happen, when things happen, you know, that has a place. There definitely needs to be a statement that this is something outrageous and that this is something that Islam does not endorse, where obviously there is a confusion because people invoke Islam when they're doing a particular action. But I think that the extent to which that happened in the post 9-11 era really entrenched a standard that as Muslims, we have to condemn what other people do. And and we were doing it not because of our own value that yes obviously people were doing it out of an intention that yeah Islam does not stand for this but we were letting other people we were letting society set the standard almost in determining when our condemnation is genuine when it is sufficient enough and because we kept condemning and apologizing as well let's not forget that there were a lot of people who did even, you know, say the words that, you know, we apologize, as though this was something that had been really done by all other right. Muslims. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Because so many people did do that, we, we we gave that authority, we gave that power to society to actually determine how we should respond. And I think that this is something that I know um, Dr. Asma Qureshi now uh, addresses the implications of this much more eloquently than I can in his book that was released, I think it was last year, uh, I Refused to Condemn which is a collection of chapters by various Muslims, I think most of them from the British Muslim community, if I'm not mistaken, but I think some figures from the US as well, who reflect again on this on, on resisting racism and resisting certain um, expectations that people have of minority and particularly Muslim communities in order to justify their place in society. And I mean, I think this remains today that, you know, as a Muslim, very often, you cannot speak about a topic related to Islam or you go on a, a, a news channel on a radio program without having to qualify that, of course, you do not support you know, mass murder of innocent people. It's, it's extremely problematic in how I think it framed people's overall understanding of what Muslims believe, that Muslims yeah. believe this. Therefore, unless you qualify it, unless you clarify, mm. you're not acceptable to wider society. I mean, this isn't entirely our fault. I'm not saying that, you know, people kind of jumped onto this bandwagon willingly. We were obviously pushed into a corner by the media. But I think there wasn't enough resistance of that until many years later where people started to question, why are we doing these things? Why are we celebrating things that say hug a Muslim, you know, outside of a metro station or on on, on Oxford Street to show that we're actually human? Why do we think we have to go out and give flowers to people to show that Muslims are peaceful people? This wasn't started by us, this expectation. But I think it really Entrenched uh, a good Muslim, bad Muslim dichotomy.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that comes to mind a lot when we're talking about this is the way that what we view as an ordinary sort of garden variety Muslim—that is the extreme version of Islam that nobody wants to see. And mm-hmm. so you're left in this position of like, well, what are you meant? What can you do with your Islam if you can't do anything? The only Muslim that is an acceptable Muslim is the one that just claims to be Muslim, but does everything that a non-Muslim would do.
0: Mm. I think yeah. I also, I mean, I want to hear from Sarah as well. But one of the things that struck me as we've spoken to, um, and that's one of the things I've loved about Muslim in plain sight, I think you also pointed out earlier, which is really nice about TQP, is that like we're having these conversations on, on like a global level, which is something that we haven't been able to do before. And I hadn't really thought about how 9 11 affected people outside of the US, except for like the obvious ways of, you know, war and detention and things like that. But one of the things I've realized talking to people in England, um, in Britain, is that even though American Islamophobia is really bad, but I feel like there's more of a suspicion of just being a religious person in Europe generally. Whereas the U.S. has such a strong history and such a strong presence of, like, evangelical Christians, which that brings its own problems. (laughs) But at least, like, being a religious person is not seen as inherently against, you know, American values. It's just, like, our version of it is people don't really want to see that. But Mm -hmm. I feel like we are more able to practice our, our religion to an extent. Just praying is not seen as a suspicious act. Whereas, like, I was really shocked to hear that under Prevent, like, even someone who visibly becomes more religious. Like growing beards, wearing a hijab. I'm not saying that that doesn't cause suspicion over here, (laughs) but
3: Mm -hmm. my impression is
0: that it's not to the level that it is in the UK.
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think Khadija would probably agree. I I always feel like the US is the the brawn. And the UK is the brains when it comes to like counter CVE projects and things like that. Because I remember before Prevent even, you know, the original kind of strategies that the government released in in the lead up to Prevent. The iteration that we have now is obviously a much more that, that people are aware of is a more recent thing. But, you know, they put a lot of thought into it and they were present in many ways, you know, in schools, in mosques, in community activities, so many interfaith projects, so many things that now people call out and are like, actually, this is, you know, funded by government money. You know, these things were funded by government money in 2007, 2008, and nobody was aware of it. But definitely, I mean, I know Sada often does talk about how in the US, I think the wave of arrests, I think, particularly, following 9-11 and the atmosphere of, you know, feeling like definitely there are spies in so many of your masajid really contributed to Mm -hmm. uh, a different feeling there, which is why I see it as kind of like the brawn versus
2: the brains. Yeah, I think it's a really good thing to point out, like how post-9-11 rhetoric and tactics in the US were reproduced in many different places around the world. In Europe, it's very obvious with like, you know, militant secularism, places like the UK and France. But then you see the exact same rhetoric also being reproduced in China and in Mm -hmm. India against Muslims there, literally the same language. And even that is, you know, like a lot more Muslims are becoming aware of that. But now we see the same rhetoric being used in the Muslim world by Muslim dictators against, you know, oppositional parties or political groups. Um, we see that with the UAE passing a fatwa declaring the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization. So you see the like really broad spanning effects of what, what you know what originated as sure like a American uh, rhetoric and programming and tactics you know to perpetuate Islamophobia, but it's being reproduced all over the world. And yes, it did produce a climate of fear here that is understandable, and that. I don't know, it, as much as it becomes a joke amongst us to be like, oh, who here is the informant? You know, we're, we're in an MSA or a masjid and <laughs> that kind of like underlying, like we all are joking, but we all know that there definitely yeah. is someone here. that, And we all have heard- like We've we had know that conversation know, with just about every single one of our
1: guests. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: No, because it's a thing that's like, we'll laugh it off, yeah. but like we all know that it's the case. We all so are true. like, yeah, I wonder like, you know, who's watching our WhatsApp group chat and things like that. So I understand the, again, yeah, like we don't want to be that like, the arrogant younger generation who's like, I wonder why, you know, our parents' generation or the the older millennials were so fearful and so apologetic in the face of these things. Um, But at the same time, I think it's good for us to just take advantage of being removed from that environment to an extent and to go ahead and be a little, I don't think, I wouldn't call it reckless even, even though maybe some people would consider us reckless in being able to speak about some of these things more openly and being less afraid. But if, you know, I think that we've moved past that um, fearful environment long enough, and also been able to observe it from the outside for long enough to see that we also kind of brought it onto ourselves. Yes, it was, you know, a climate of fear was like very obviously created by the government, by DHS programs, by Guantanamo Bay. You know, we, we were spied on in our MSA, in our MSAs. I know people who were interrogated yeah, by FBI agents and when I was in college. So this was like not crazy long ago. But at the same time, we also see like how people, how Muslims within the Muslim community police each other so much Mm -hmm. where we're like, okay, don't talk about that. Don't mention that author. Don't mention that book. Mm -hmm. Don't Google that thing. Otherwise, you know, X, Y, Z is going to happen. And we have the counterfactual like we can look at, you know, people who do talk about these things, who do read those books and um, those authors and nothing has happened to them. And, you know, we're not encouraging people to I don't encourage people to be careless, but I also think that we exaggerate the fear. It leads to like a whole other level of policing here where it's not just like the fear of talking about things like jihad, but also just fear of like certain religious symbols like niqab or like abayas, like beards that are too long. And how that leads to us policing fellow members of the Muslim community and kind of blaming each other for Islamophobia being like, OK, well, you know, maybe the teacher wouldn't have like said X, Y, Z and picked you out if you hadn't like showed up to class looking like this. Um, that takes place a lot, I think, in the American Muslim community. And I also, I think it manifests in just who we prop up as community leaders, who we consider the good sheikh, the one that we would be, you know, happy to bring our our non-Muslim friends to, you know, come l- listen to his or her talk. And that person, that sheikh or speaker, whatever, tends to look like somebody who is very fashionable, is very familiar with like American pop culture, often is white, um, has very loose gender interactions. And we prop this person up as like the person that we're okay with representing us in the Muslim community. Um, and to go back to your question about like how this has affected like communal discourse I think that this is really one of the, the greatest losses for the Muslim community was that in propping certain people up as our teachers and as our public speakers, for one thing, we just demonized foreignness. We demonized Muslimness in many ways um, and perpetuated that Islamophobia against each other. But we also just replaced Islamic education with Islamic apologetics. So many like sisters will grow up wearing hijab, and when they're asked about what it is, they'll be able to tell you that it empowers them and that they do it because God asked them to but they won't be able to answer like very basic questions like okay why do women wear it and not men mm. and that's a like going to be one of the first you know questions that uh, comes to mind for many non-muslims but simple things like that or like okay where does god prescribe this how do we know that this is um how hijab is supposed to be worn and a lot of muslims face these questions for the first time and they're like Dang, I have no idea. Let me, maybe this whole hijab thing doesn't actually make sense. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's invalid. And then they become very prone to rhetoric that diminishes hijab or completely invalidates it. Um, and hijab is just like the obvious example because it, it's the visual symbol of Islam. But I think this became the case with like just so much of Islamic education where instead of learning aqidah, we started learning apologetics instead of learning fiqh. We learned apologetics.
0: All right. It was like instead Mm. of going deep into the sources to find out like what our religion actually says and why these things are important for us to follow, we learned how to do PR for ourselves Mm -hmm. in in front of everyone else.
2: Exactly. No, Mm. we start with the arguments against Islam and then answer them instead of just starting with what does Islam actually say. And yeah, it led to a lot of Muslims, I think. Only like just learning their religion through apologetics and through that becoming very vulnerable. Yeah, it also
1: leads has led like in in my line of work I've seen this a lot that when people's faith is challenged and they're not able to answer it satisfactorily for themselves they can often end up leaving the deal. oh because yeah you you know this is something that I think about a lot when it comes to growing up Muslim in a non-Muslim majority country or locality which is that one way or another. Your belief in your religion is being tested Mm. in every interaction that you have, in every day that you pass, in every educational institution that you attend, in every class that you take. That belief is constantly tested. And every day you have to reaffirm and reaffirm and reaffirm. And like, Mm. alhamdulillah, we are all here having reaffirmed that countless number of times. But you also do meet people who are going through that and they haven't been able to answer that. And in that case, they do not necessarily leave Islam, but they don't understand why they should do the thing. So they don't do them, which is makes sense, because why would yeah. you do something that you don't understand the reason for?
0: I think for me, I'm really grateful that I had my mother actually grow up in England and Canada. So my dad grew up in Pakistan, but she, although she's, you know, ethnically Pakistani, she had already gone through that experience of getting to age 15, 16 and being like, oh, I have to claim this for myself. I have to do this because I believe in it. And so she told us when we were growing up too, like the first thing that she tried to teach us was like loving Allah, knowing Allah. And that was the basis for everything else. It wasn't Mm -hmm. like, here are all the Mm -hmm. rules you have to follow. Um, And then she told us like, I'm not going to be around all the time. Like, don't do this for your parents. Do this because Allah's watching you, whether I'm there or I'm not, whether I'm alive or I'm dead. You know, like, she was like, you have to make this choice. And for me, that was like so important and so empowering that when I got faced with 9 11 and, you know, everything, everything that came mm. after that, I had a solid core of that belief that didn't come from any external source. Yeah. You know, alhamdulillah. And
1: like, in some ways, 9 11 is just one thing, right? We were also experiencing so many things growing up you're always experiencing yeah, so and there's so many, many trials so
0: many trials mm. of life that have nothing to do with Islamophobia that we still yeah. have to deal with like everyday life trials like illness and yeah. family stuff and school mm. and jobs and yeah you know like for me
1: even the the moment that I not necessarily moment but the period that I would consider sort of when I converted that was pre-9 eleven. Like I accepted Islam. (laughs) I grew up Muslim, but I had that moment where I was like, Mm -hmm. this is my choice. This is what I'm doing because I believe in it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have your own fervor, you have your own curiosity, you have your own deep pursuit for knowledge. And that was when I was 15. And that was years before Mm 9-11. Not that many years, but it was still years.
2: Yeah. And you guys are fortunate because like what you were saying about how like you know, constantly having to answer for your Islam and everything, it does push a lot of people away from the deen, if not completely out of it. It also pushes some people to just like entrench themselves more in their Islamic identity and to actually study it more and to, mm-hmm. you know, it motivates them to seek more Islamic knowledge. But it's it's a huge risk of like, you know, people going towards like one direction or the other, especially when, the reason that you're learning Islam, the reason that you're studying it more is to answer other people, Mm -hmm. then the answers you look for are going to be not necessarily the most accurate ones, but the ones that are most satisfying to whoever you're trying to answer. So even if it does lead some people down the path of, you know, trying to study Islam more to really understand it, it can also lead them to studying it and learning it and, you know, portraying it in a way that's, again, not most accurate to the sources or most accurate to um, the way the Prophet so Sallallahu Alaihi am taught it, but the way that I can package it best for my non-Muslim friends and colleagues and everything. So for those of us who have like family back home, I don't know, like a lot of us experience like going back and they're like, whoa, you guys are like such good Muslims. And mm-hmm. they're like very surprised that we wear hijab and everything. And there's just like, we feel this sense of like urgency about our mm-hmm. Islam that they don't they've never had to because nobody really challenged mm-hmm. them for it. But it's a huge risk. Again, like either you end up going that direction of Just getting way more into it, getting much more into the study of Islam and like holding more strongly onto your beliefs or the opposite direction, which is extremely dangerous.
1: Mm. You know, it's funny you say that going back home, that people are impressed for me, people were like, You're so extreme. Why are you such extremists? Islam is moderate. And we well. weren't being extreme. We were just being normal, <laughs> as in, normal as what we would, mm. between us, we would understand. I heard that as too
0: from people <laughs> in Pakistan.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's just so funny. So, given that mm. kind of environment that we've been talking about, And of course, our own experiences of growing up in that and shaping the Muslims that we became. How then do you understand Muslim identity? Do you feel that it's easier to uphold that identity now than it was before? And do you think it is different in newer immigrant communities versus longer established Muslim communities in in both our countries in in the US and the UK?
3: (laughs) I think that first question alone is just huge of, you know, what is Muslim identity?
1: Whole it's podcast that. series. <laughs> right? We just talk about that for an hour. Literally.
3: Yeah. Um, I mean, to me, I think Islamic identity is embodying Islamic values, worldview, and practice. And all of those I see as distinct things in and of themselves, again, each worthy of <laughs> an episode. But they're fundamentally determinant of you know your likes and dislikes, your aspirations, and your behavior at an individual level. But I feel also at a communal level, it informs how you understand the world and how you see the behaviour of societies, of nations, and, and how you think, you know, things ought to be how we ought to live. Culture, upbringing, and obviously, all of our unique experiences are all varied. And, you know, b- but to me, they are an addendum to that foundation. To me, that, that that is what Islamic identity is, that it provides us the foundation to bring all of those different experiences to the table. And that's what makes us unique. In terms of whether it's easier to there and hold on to an Islamic identity today compared to in the past, I feel like it's easier in some ways and and more difficult in others, which is like, you know, such a, a con of an answer. A little bit here, a little bit there. <laughs> um, but, it's ratios, I mean, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. exactly. There's no absolutes. Yeah. It's all nuance in, in everything <laughs> in life. But I feel like of of those three elements, adhering to Islamic practices in many ways is easier because they've become much more normalized in in different parts of the West. You know, Sara was talking about hijab. I think that, alhamdulillah, for a lot of people, the normalization of hijab as, yes, a symbol of Islam and something Muslim women do. But also just, you know, people seeing it on television. It's become more common. There's been this huge debate about it. But most people have reached a kind of, you know, except in France, of course, uh, <laughs> have reached a kind of, you know, stalemate in understanding that Muslim women choose to wear this. They are not all being forced by their husbands and their fathers. I think that that awareness on a communal level, that does exist. You have in individuals.
1: In a way that kind of tells you that, the, let's say, a decade of messaging, Muslim messaging has paid off, right? In some ways, agreed. Yes, in some ways. But I'd query that.
3: <laughs> I'm going to come back to it. But I think that's, that's interesting it, 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 for, But for now, I agree. Let's mm-hmm. say, yeah. And I think that for that reason, wearing hijab is easier for many people. I think... Doing things like, you know, expressing anti-war sentiments or calling out American imperialism or Islamophobia is a lot easier today. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's in part because of the way the whole world has changed and, you know, different events that framed many people's thinking, not just Muslims, is a lot easier. And obviously it's been helped by the rise of social media that's connecting people, etc, etc. But I think that expressing your belief in truths, religious truths, and truth here with a capital T, is perhaps more difficult because of the 20 years of scrutiny that we've had, as well as then changing trends. I think that we've perhaps placed a lot of emphasis as a community on accepting differences in appearance and aesthetics and recognising that Muslims do this, Muslims do that. Muslims don't believe XYZ, Muslims don't endorse ABC, but not enough on addressing the actual root beliefs that are held by Muslims, and how this differs from the norm. So this is where I feel like with hijab, in many ways, alhamdulillah, it's successful, in many ways, not so. I feel mm-hmm. like the argumentation that we've used to present hijab to non-Muslims is really one that fits into uh, a liberal framework mm-hmm. of it's our choice, you know, mm-hmm. it's our agency. Yeah, I actually agree. And this means that for many people, you know, the underlying reasoning as to why we wear hijab, the spiritual link is lost. People using the example of modesty and kind of forcing it into that bracket which of course hijab mm. is a representation of modesty but detaching it from submission to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala and rather the choice to be modest sometimes it leads us into very difficult conversations I mean Khadija you may remember that a few years ago in the UK there was a bit of a, a scandal about whether young girls in school like primary oh, school yeah. should have to wear hijab right and people were like oh this is sexualizing young girls because why do young girls have to be modest And
1: I remember reading this and I was like... absolutely right. It just, yeah, you're gobsmacked. You're like, how did you arrive at this conclusion? Because it's... Yeah, I I can't even formulate my thoughts
3: because it's... It's it's mind-boggling, but but to an extent, I understand why people would come to that conclusion if they're being told that you wear this to be modest. And then they see a five-year-old and they're like, well, she doesn't want to be modest. Because we didn't frame it as this is an Islamic obligation that then young girls who grow up being told that, you know, God exists he has given us everything. Uh, We are grateful to him, we worship him. And then they see other role models in their family, their mum, their sisters, their aunts, their, you know, sister's friends, all wearing hijab. It's something that they naturally endear themselves towards. Mm. Then it makes a lot more sense. But where we focused on this argumentation of, well, I choose to be modest, and, you know, modesty for me is very empowering, then I can understand why someone would turn around and say, but a six-year-old doesn't need to be modest. Why are you Mm. thinking she should? And this is again the nuance of the argument. I'm not saying that, you know, but I, I just feel that because we were trying to make our actions understandable to the majority rather than explaining them on our own terms, we yeah. end up getting ourselves into the problems later on that, you know, we can't explain ourselves out of. Mm. Yeah.
1: That's
2: really well said. I'm, How about your thoughts, Sarah? Yeah, I mean I'm honestly like I'm very allergic to the term identity and I, I just run away from <laughs> conversations that bring it up. Please
1: tell us why. I love yeah. I love it when Anissa has this as well. She has words that she hates.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so please, please no, tell it, us more. <laughs> it, like it's not that I I don't think it's meaningful or that it's a cornerstone of like a lot of the conversations that we have as Muslims, but I don't like how identity became this sacred cow in especially. I would say like leftist circles. Are Muslims allowed where- to say sacred cow? Oh, I mean, <laughs> well, yeah, because it's a bad thing. I'm saying it's a bad thing here. <laughs> I'm just using. I'm using funny metaphors It's in the Figurative,
0: Kedida. Come on, I'm joking. I'm joking.
2: <laughs> no, but yeah, it, it's become this like untouchable, you know, thing where it's just something that's like innately valid. Like whatever you identify with, nobody can challenge that. Otherwise, that constitutes a form of violence. Mm. Yeah, it, I don't. know. That, that's why I don't. I don't like talking about like Muslim identity, because when, when I look at, okay, what did the Prophet sallallahu teach us? He taught us like what to believe and what to do. And in many ways, what to feel. And I, I would put that under like what to to do. I would include that in actions, but um, that's why I, I think it's a, more important to talk about like, okay, what are Muslim beliefs that we should inculcate? Is it easy to, you know, uphold Muslim belief in, in our day and age? Is it easy? And you guys are talking about actions right now by talking about hijab, um, but there's so much else, you know, like living as a Muslim day to day, it's not just consciousness, but it has to be knowing the basic beliefs. This is something that I think like the 90s dawah gets like knocked on a lot for, which is like this obsession with al And I completely understand why that's the case. But uh, like sometimes I'm like, I wish we had just like a little bit of that now where I wish Muslims could go into the world now feeling at least equipped with those like basic beliefs that they can list off. Like having gone through, I don't know, like the Tahawi or something, you know, being able to just like establish their beliefs about the world in a, a rational way too. I think that that's important because that's where a lot of like the attacks against you as a Muslim come from. It's not just you know feeling welcome or feeling like your identity is not you know welcome in certain spaces because we've we I think we've gotten past that. We've gotten past Muslim identity being demonized. Muslims are celebrated everywhere in like American pop culture, in like modeling campaigns, in whatever. But that's because. It's just the Muslim identity that's celebrated. Muslim belief is still demonized, and Muslim actions are still demonized. So that's why I think it's it just it's important to like shift the conversation to those things a little bit. Even though I maybe some people will just say that those are the things that constitute Muslim identity. So yeah, I don't know if that's if that's fair for me to problematize the term like that, but <laughs> that's just the the lens that I would prefer to take. I feel like it's a more productive way to. To discuss those things.
0: Yeah, I understand that. I'm all about deconstructing problematizing terms.
2: <laughs> yeah. We're
0: actually gonna talk some more about that actually. So um well, you got us started. Get ready. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, just like segueing from that. I think a lot of us have really strong negative reactions towards like um assimilation and integration. I know I do. Tolerance, I hate that word too. Moderate. <laughs> I hate that one as well. Moderate is a big one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <Ooh. laughs> Can you can you talk about like what relationship you have with those words and how those words have been weaponized against our communities? Mm,
3: yeah, no, I'm with you guys. I think these are words I'm, I'm super wary of and just would not use them, not even with clarification. I think that, you know, language doesn't just express our thoughts it shapes them yes and we can't take them as objective just terms in and of themselves uh and you know trying and define them the way that we want and say this is you know how i feel about the terms there's two decades of history that is now embodied in their definitions and i don't think that really we can we can use them they're not our words you know we, we can't use them yeah. even to express worthy objectives and it's frustrating because yeah we don't i don't like words like integration assimilation, moderate tolerance, etc. But I think that sometimes, you know, these are things we need to have a conversation about in terms of how we as Muslim minorities live in the Western world and avoid situations like ghettoization, right? Because we need to be able to accurately present our beliefs to people and to live with people of different faiths and of no faith and to actually, you know, survive, like, just in the world. And this is what Islam is about as well. It's not about just hiding away from people, only being among your people. But even words like, SubhanAllah, like interfaith, I think, I mean, I don't think you can, it's suitable, definitely not for the UK context, because increasingly, I think people are not sharing faith as much as they are trying to bond on a fundamental value of UK society at least which is secularism I mean as you were saying mm. earlier Anissa like definitely and, and Khadija I'd be interested to hear your thoughts as well but I do not see the UK as a religious society in any way shape or form no. and um, you know it's it's very rarely invoked and it's almost kind of a weak argumentation to ever use about anything so You know, the idea that we would have interfaith to try and um, kind of facilitate this objective, I I don't see that as working where people are not religious. Um, But at the same time, then words like community cohesion, I think this implies that Muslims are separate from society. And this is something that's absolutely not true, regardless of what the far right try to imply. Definitely about the situation in the UK. You know, there was uh, obviously Trump. Um, famously had that thing about, um, you know, no-go zones in the UK because mm. of, of Muslim <laughs> presence. But, you know, this is a complete <laughs> myth, um, you know, and that because of that growing polarisation around us, I think that that's why it's so important that we do engage in dialogue. But to be honest, I think this is something that, inshallah, I hope our, our communities can start thinking and talking about, and I feel like we're getting to a breaking point where we will have to try and address this in, in, in a different way because as much as all of this conversation is needed, with the cancel culture that we're seeing becoming the norm and then the securitized legacy of the war on terror. You know, if people are scared that their children are going to be reported to things like Prevent for expressing certain beliefs in a way that is even accommodating to others who think differently, how do we start that conversation? you know, and this is something that obviously is a conversation in broader society as well, where people feel like, oh, the woke left are shutting us down. Obviously, that's not always true. Sometimes it's calling out things that need to be called out that have been left for far too long, things like racism, things like uh, institutional Islamophobia, etc. But very often as well, there are occasions where we are not safe as Muslims to start these conversations in our communities and in society, because people will jump on you and call you, you know, Mm -hmm transphobic or <laughs> anti-Semitic or whatever it may be and, and completely shut those conversations down. So we're between a rock and a hard place, essentially. I feel like we need some creative solutions to break out of this vicious circle. But I think we also need to think about how we can protect ourselves in what is still a very hostile atmosphere. And I think that, inshallah, perhaps (laughs) this conversation in the future amongst ourselves and others, you know, can think about initiatives or campaigns that we can look to where we can state our message clearly with the objective of this engagement, but in a way that protects us. I think we need some more thoughts about that.
2: Yeah. Um, Yeah. When I hear those terms like assimilation or integration, I always just try to figure out, like, what are the intended purposes of those actions, of those processes in the Muslim community? And usually it's you know, just to like make Muslims feel safer or to actually improve the material conditions like in the West. Like that would be the goal of assimilation, right? So that we don't have to suffer like Islamophobia on a daily basis and everything, but which is not necessarily a problem, right? Like improving the material conditions of Muslims and non-Muslims should be an objective of Muslims, but we have a hierarchy of objectives and preservation like of our religious beliefs and of our religious practice takes precedence over our comfort. And we're talking about comfort here, not talking about like, you know, this is really pertinent. I think We saw that video that uh, was going around social media recently of, like, that sister who was going to school in, Karnataka. I don't know the name of the city, like, in India. And she's being harassed by this, like, huge mob of, like, Hindutva guys who are just, like, screaming at her and everything. Like, her safety is, like, genuinely at risk. And she's still, like, screw this. Like, I'm not going to assimilate. What the heck? Like, she's not, you know, her expression of, you know, just, like, her confidence and her yeah, like how entrenched she is like in her belief and in her identity is really beautiful. But I I think we do have to compare our situation to Muslims in those situations sometimes to just remind ourselves like, okay, how much discomfort do we actually experience on a daily basis as Muslims? How much is this project of assimilation? um, Like how much benefit does it bring at what cost? So I think that's important. At the same time, there are people who say that actually the objective of assimilation is Dawah. It's to bring more people into Islam by showing them that Islam is not this foreign thing, by Talking about American Islam, that doesn't mean, you know, changing the fundamentals of Islam, but just presenting it in a way that makes sense to Americans because Islam is timeless. It's for all peoples and all places. And I think the anxiety about that, about, you know, making sure that Islam does, doesn't does look too foreign, that it's palatable to people everywhere for the sake of dawah. I do think that that anxiety often just, it's just racist a lot of the time. Like it has really racist connotations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That process of, of Islam becoming indigenous, I think it is done organically. I don't think it's done by like forcibly erasing, um, you know, foreign seeming symbols or expressions of people's Islam. I think more people are more likely to see Islam as appealing and as inspirational and as something different to what they're experiencing now as something genuinely different to, you know, this like spiritual void that they've been swimming in for God knows how long, because they look li- like they live in the society that they do when Muslims just, you know, express Islam in a way that looks different in a way that is, you know, not not assimilationist. So I think that that is, you know, a much better dawah tactic. And I mean actual dawah in terms of like teaching people the beliefs of Islam and showing them why Islam is something that is for them, not just let us be Muslim, but here's why you should be Muslim too. I think that that's a better way to understand dawah. But I think that in that sense, if we're genuinely concerned about Dawah and that's why we're talking about assimilation and integration, I don't think that the anxiety is really that necessary. I think people come to Islam when they see Muslims just being Muslim and doing so in a very strong, confident way. Yeah. And I
0: think we also need to ask ourselves and have these conversations with each other about like, what are we assimilating to? Like, what are we integrating ourselves into? What is the purpose of these terms like assimilation? I mean, it's white supremacy in the end, right? Yeah, of course. The pressure of that white supremacy, especially I think for immigrant communities who come to the white majority countries and we kind of have this preformed idea of like what this society's values are how we can be successful in this society, what we need to Mm -hmm. kind of mold ourselves into, you know, whether that's the American dream or whatever the UK equivalent of that is. I don't know. (laughs) We don't
3: have
0: one. It's just like, we hate it. We hate everybody and everything. Everyone's (laughs) trying to leave the UK. Yeah, everyone's trying to leave. But then, you know, that ignores the fact that like mainstream white society is not, all of America. It's just the part of America that has been perpetuated in like globalized American media. And there's communities here that have been, you know, like Black Muslims who have a legacy of fighting for themselves and for Islam that like many of us just don't know or don't value or like haven't spent the time trying to understand. And that's something that like we really need to reflect on as immigrant Muslims and the descendants of immigrant Muslims. Like Why is that something that we have not valued and honored and given its due place in our history as American Muslims?
1: It seems to me that the goal of assimilation is ultimately a kind of erasure of visible Muslimness. Mm -hmm. The same way that homogenized milk is just milk all the way through, right? There's no cream, there's no... You know, it's it's just, it's all It's to make
0: everything the same. (laughs) But that's not our Mm worldview. We don't believe that everything should be the same. Mm. You know, in Islam, we don't even believe that everyone should be Muslim. Like, that's not how Allah created the world. Mm. Yeah.
1: I want to circle back to a point, actually, that you made earlier, right at the top of the episode. You mentioned that we are in a post-war on terror era. Mm. I didn't know we were, but please tell (laughs) me more. Um, What do you mean by that? So
3: this is something that I've heard um, other people argue for. Of late, and it's something that I've started to understand why they come out of that. I'm, I'm I don't think that it means we are not impacted still by the war on terror. We are, but I see a lot of changes from like just a geopolitical perspective. Even sorry, my background is international development, and I generally probably read too much politics and international relations. So. That's what my head goes to. But I mean, when we're looking at kind of Biden's um, foreign policy to <laughs> to make this very boring for your listeners, you know, the challenge that China is posing, for example, uh, there's a shift in the way in which the world is turning towards looking at this new kind of Cold War between the US and China. And the Middle East, which, you know, was the centre of the war on terror, it's declining on the agenda somewhat. I think that as well, obviously, with the culture wars that we're seeing in, in the Western world as dominating the social agenda, There is still a question of, of course, Islamic extremism and what does that mean and what are the signs of extremism. But I think that there are a lot of fault lines within uh, Western society and in modern society that people are now deliberating over and things like that. And the Muslim question is one question within that broader spectrum. So I feel like in that way, the attention has shifted somewhat and other things, other issues are guiding government behaviour towards the Muslim community. We're still feeling, obviously, many effects. Things like Prevent are obviously still in operation. Things like CVE still are. But it's no longer the unifying factor. You know, the the US could not get all of the NATO countries that supported the the US-led invasion of Afghanistan today. You know, that would not happen in the absence of some other kind of major event that stimulated it. But the priorities have shifted in many ways. And I think that even the experiences that we're having as a Muslim community where we see, and we were saying, you know, things like hijab have been more normalised, things like that, acknowledging your Islamic identity, although I agree with Sarah's point about what do we understand identity to mean and problematizing that word entirely. But the the childhood that I see many young people who are of Gen Z, <laughs> who are <laughs> the real generation Z, or even, you know, Generation Alpha, the generations coming after them, is not the childhood that I had. It's not the childhood uh, or, or the teenage years that I experienced where we were growing up among this atmosphere of apologetics. I think there are definitely questions and challenges that Muslims are facing, but they're not so informed by this idea that are Muslims terrorists or not. They're informed by broader questions of what is the place of Islam, religion, ethics, values in the modern world amid all of these other societal shifts.
2: Hmm. I would push back only a little bit just to point out that like the same arguments still keep getting recycled though and like the the same like war on terror points like are still being recycled. And that was like very obvious with like Joe Biden's recent action to take literally all the assets like in like Ugh. the Afghanistan mm-hmm. central bank and distribute some of them to the victims of 9-11, like to their I families. I was going to just
0: bring that up yeah. too. Like the yeah.
2: amount of connections that he had to draw in order to like say that this money should go to these people like that. <laughs> it just goes to show you how like that's still the reference point when it comes to like just how we look at and approach like the Middle East and the Muslim world, like from an American foreign policy perspective. So very true. I don't disagree that things have changed drastically, but I don't know like how long it will take for, for 9-11 and the War on Tower to stop being this like center point in like the American political imaginary.
0: In a lot of mm-hmm. ways, it's just rather than anything being over, it's just a continued escalation. So, you mm-hmm. know, like DHS is not going to go back into the bottle like we have it now. Mm-hmm. We formed it. It's become this like hydra that just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Now it's also ice. It's like it's affecting the way that our local police interact with local communities. We have, you know, military equipment that's being used by our local police departments to put down protests for racial justice like these things have entrenched themselves into our communities and they're not going away. And I feel like the rhetoric about like China and things like that is just something that's been added on top. Mm -hmm. I I do think that the war on terror has shifted because they're not able to get away with the kind of things that they could immediately after 9-11 when like America had so much goodwill from everyone and they like, they abused it to no end by just doing all kinds of things. I don't think that they can quite get away with that now because Mm -hmm. of how things have changed, as you pointed out globally. But I don't know. It's, yeah, not to be a downer. No, no, no. It's fine. But I think I think one of the things that we have also learned is that apologizing for who we are or, you know, condemning things when we don't need to condemn them or, like, assimilating ourselves into society, none of that is actually going to protect us. Like, mm. if they decide to come after you yeah. and take you in for questioning or if they decide to, you know, invade a, a certain village or bomb a certain... Like, becoming a little, you know... Uh, trying to be white or, (laughs) you know, trying to be, you know, this ideal of American culture or an ideal of, you know, British culture, like a like a little model citizen, according to whatever liberal democracy that we live in. That's not actually going to save us because we can never become one of them in their eyes, no matter how we feel, you know, like no matter how American I feel, there are certain people who are never going to see me as the kind of American they want to see um, mm. I'm never going to be us. I'll always be them for and those people. You know, this is in the Quran. This is what Allah tells us in Surah al They will never be happy with you
1: unless you forsake your religion completely. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, our choices are really quite simple at a point. You're either all in. Yeah. I mean, all in
2: is the only way to be. There is no other way.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. Absolutely. And I, I would also agree with like portraying it as an escalation because. This is valuable to, I think, this framework that, like, a lot of critical race theorists use when discussing um, white supremacy is that they they really try to emphasize that white supremacy has not lessened, mm-hmm. even post, like, civil rights movement or anything, but it's actually just become a lot more sophisticated and a lot more hidden. Yep. Um. So this you can't say the same things that you used to be able to say, but the data and the policies show that white supremacy is still very much active, still very much at work. Um. And I, that's why I think critical race theory is important, despite, like, the weird rhetoric that's going on in the Muslim community right now is because it drives a lot of data collection to actually Mm -hmm. prove like how white supremacy um, like the results that it creates in like, you know, housing discrimination, in health racism, um, in environmental racism, things like that. But yeah, when it comes to thinking about like, okay, are we in a post XYZ era? I don't think we're even in a post Pro era. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the DHS and how, I think that that's also like a continuation of the same policies, right? Mm-hmm. And I wanted to point this out also because like, I, I don't know if you guys know, um, Ahmed Sheikh, he's actually based in California, but he has this newsletter where he writes about like Muslim nonprofit organizations and kind of like investigates their practices and, you know, the ethicalness and like whether they actually stick to their principles. But his most recent newsletter was talking about CARE, um, which is a council on American Islamic relations or like civil rights organization who has been like championing anti-war on terror thing like ever since I actually I'm, I'm pretty sure it was established like right at close to. Um, after 9-11 no it Um, was pre-9-11 but it became
0: way more active like it's been around I think since 95 or something oh okay interesting. we actually had um their sf bay area director on it she was our first interview okay so interesting
2: yeah which is and that's the thing is like I remember at, at least the California chapters of care have like one of their most like consistent points and like just stances for the longest time has been anti-CVE. But recently, and this might also just be like representation of like the national chapter, because the chapters are, they're not completely cohesive. Like they have different stances on things, but they recently released a statement about like DHS CVE programs um, and a specific like funding, you know, like what the DHS does like is they um, open these like grant applications that like Muslim organizations and messages and stuff can apply to, to get funding And then that serves as an in for the DHS to then go into Muslim communities and survey and spy and collect data and everything. And before CARE had released a statement speaking against this, and then only recently they released another press statement that was like, okay, actually the DHS has updated the language in their program. And they have explicitly said that information collection is not a requirement of the program. And they encourage people to apply to the grant program now. And Ahmed Sheikh in his newsletter is discussing, like, that was never explicit in the language to begin with. That's not how the DHS runs CVE programs. They don't say, they don't give you a contract that says, like, you have to let us install six cameras in the musalla in order for us to give you 100K. What they do is they give you money. And then after they've, you know, established goodwill with this organization or this masjid, then that masjid has to, like, play nice with the DHS and, you know, basically just play nice with law enforcement and allow them to... Um, engage in whatever surveillance practices and like data collection that they want to so i just thought that this was yeah like just shocking because like you see how people i don't know like an an organization that is far from perfect but that i expect to at least be consistent on this one point has now flip-flopped on that um which is what he called the the article that he wrote but yeah i think that this also just speaks to this point about like assimilation and how it's really dangerous because islamophobia and white supremacy i think they just continue to get more sophisticated with time. And people who, it's not that, you know, certain Muslims stop caring about Islamophobia, but they start thinking that, oh, Islamophobia doesn't exist anymore, or this government policy or this uh, administration is no longer Islamophobic. And so they're tricked into, you know, like supporting these things and adopting their programs without realizing that it's the same thing in effect. It's just a nicer language. Yeah. And it's something to keep in mind that these people, like you mentioned this before,
0: Islamophobia is a globally funded extremely powerful network and industry it's not just an idea mm-hmm. there's a lot of funding that goes into it there's a lot of legwork that goes into it there's a lot of resources that go into it and like as a regular person who's just trying to you know go about your life like it's not very easy for you to go against all of this organized infrastructure of misinformation propaganda um, and that's kind of how white supremacy works too, right? It's baked into our institutions. It keeps evolving to survive like a, like a coronavirus, you know, yeah. like <laughs> a <very>
2: accurate metaphor. <laughs> it
0: continues to adapt and mutate so that it can survive. Yeah, this conversation <laughs> is so 2022. Uh, <laughs> um, speaking of which, like one of the things that we're dealing with nowadays um, is this rise of nationalism and these sort of like far right nationalist movements all over the world. I feel like we can't kind of separate these nationalist movements from Islamophobia like if you see everywhere it's happening there's also this rise of like anti-Muslim racism violence you know look at India look at Trump Boris Johnson mm-hmm. China you know like these somehow these things have become intertwined can y'all talk a little bit about that I mean again I'm sorry I'm just gonna take the boring geopolitical
3: perspective
0: <laughs> I mean you're well, an expert we'd love to hear your expert <laughs> opinion at all.
3: Not at all, not at all, subhanAllah. But um, I mean, I think a lot of this nationalism that we're seeing and this polarization is because the nation state model, which has you know, really only become the norm in the past century or so, has really failed in, in, in many states. And in some of obviously, you know, it's, it's, it's harboring us uh, in, in the US and the UK, especially to result in the kind of cohesion and the kind of standard of living that people believed it would. And I think that as a result, it's easy, obviously, to otherise people and to push the blame onto the immigrants, onto the Muslims, onto African-Americans, onto the Chinese on the other side of the world or whoever it may be, onto your neighbours in India against Muslims who have been in that country for centuries and centuries and make out that they are some kind of invaders. All of this rhetoric is because really that system and that model that was touted as the absolute ideal has failed to actually successfully merge and create an identity in which people know what it means to be of that identity. I mean, this is a question that we have all the time in the UK, which is, you know, what are British values? Mm -hmm. And people don't know, like, (laughs) they really don't know. Even just recently, there was another article, obviously, this was a conversation that started um, a few many years ago now, five, six years ago. Um, But I just saw an article like a couple of months ago talking about how the BBC has been told to give a higher priority to shows that have Britishness in them. And they can't even explain what that is with language. So they just give examples of like the Great British Bake Off, probably because it has British in the title and has lots of Union (laughs) Jacks in in the cooking tent. Doctor Who, because it started in the 1970s and, you know, shows Britain at different points in history. And, you know, Luther, I think, was like the other one. And you're just like, what do these have in common? What do the Great British Bake Off, Doctor Who and Luther have in common? don't really know. (laughs) It's very hard to identify. (laughs) Even the people, you know, the government themselves don't know, even though they're telling the BBC to make more shows like this. And it's because of this lack of an identifiable ethical framework because ultimately what is the foundation of these societies? It's liberalism. And, you know, it was, it, it touted, you know, that it will accept all different kinds of freedoms and ultimately it's about purporting individual freedom. Really, more than anything, they expanded economic freedom. And what has that led to? That's led to widening social and economic inequality people are frustrated at that and then they see people around them who don't look like them they you know the media tells them that these people are xyz and it forces people to go to even more you know extremes obviously that's quite specific to the uk context in terms of that story but i think similar elements of that happen everywhere and it's the failure of you know the international system as well to actually serve people's interests always then it's easier for countries to exit the system and to turn inward and start being isolationist to appease their populations that, you know, we're doing what's right for us. Sorry, this is a lot of factors I'm trying to squish in here (laughs) and not explaining any of them very well at all, other than British TV shows. But
0: (laughs) no, no, yeah, you're doing a (laughs) job.
3: In some, I think that, you know, it's definitely a worrying trend, but it's a symbol of a much deeper structural issue. Yeah,
2: I think it's to add to that, like, as much as like these forms of Islamophobia are becoming uh, more sophisticated and more hidden, it's still easier to point out the Islamophobia that's embedded in like white nationalism, uh, amongst Brexiters, in like Han Chinese nationalism, in Hindutva nationalism. But I think it's also important for Muslims to recognize like how Arab nationalism can be extremely Islamophobic, and part of that manifests in like what I mentioned earlier about like the UAE passing this fatwa about like the Muslim Brotherhood. For example, being like a terrorist organization, and how like that fatwa was passed in conjunction with like Saudi fatwa councils, who were like originally were really trying to spur that on because the Muslim Brotherhood, and I'm this is not like a blanket endorsement of them or anything, but just to point out that like they were the opposition party in Egypt to like Arab nationalists, right? To secular Arab nationalists, and a lot of arguments against them are coming from secular Arab nationalists, and that this is like a it's like a shared program amongst Arab nationalists to you know like it. it it has to come from islamophobia because like if they were genuinely trying to like approach policy and governance from an islamic standpoint they wouldn't be able to make the nationalist arguments that they do make like for example during um like the egyptian revolution a lot of the arguments that were made um like by the military and by its proponents for like why it was okay even to massacre protesters and to treat them as combatants was the argument that they're foreigners that they're foreign combatants that these are people coming from not like you know, America or whatever, from other Muslim countries. And so these are people who are threatening Egyptian nationalism. They're threatening our Egyptian, like, political mm-hmm. self-determination by trying to interfere in our politics. So, yeah, like, I think Muslims need to recognize that, like, that doesn't mean that we that we just, like, give nationalism, like, a new face and a new ethnicity and then it's, like, all good and well because it's coming from a Muslim country. But that, like, I don't see any forms of nationalism that aren't Islamophobic. I would just distinguish it from, like, this, a very particular context where nationalisms in just the post-colonial world in general were used um, as a driver to fight against colonialism. So for example, like Algerian nationalism, Mm -hmm. it's very much like a construction, right? Where it doesn't necessarily accurately represent all the different components of like Algerian society of Algerian ethnicities and languages but it became a very effective tool to fight against French colonialism by unifying people behind the flag of Algerian nationalism which still Algerian nationalism it was and it still is very much defined by Islam and by Arabness which is like the part that people problematize a lot more but in that context like it had a very specific function which was to fight against French colonialism but now when you know nationalisms in the Arab world are used to like stamp out more Islamic expressions and Islamic motivations, you know, behind policy, behind governance and like certain political parties and stuff. Then I don't think we can make the same excuses for it anymore.
0: Yeah. You make such a good point, Sara, about how that emerged out of these movements against colonialism. But the thing, as you were saying, Aisha, like this whole structure of the nation state, it hasn't been around for very long. And it's something that started out in the 15, 1600s in Europe, and then Europe basically colonized the whole world and imposed this nation-state model across the globe through colonialism. And that initial idea was like, it's a state and it's built around a nation. And back then it was easy because the nation was, even back then, it wasn't one type of people, but that's what they said. You know, there was one kind of people in that nation, those people became a state. And in the last 70, 80, 100 years, there's been this sort of oh, like, well, we could have a multicultural nation state, but the nation state was built for one kind of people. So even if, you know, a country like the United States says that there's liberty and justice and equality for all, that was with the understanding that only white people would be citizens of that country. And so it wasn't a contradiction at that time. (laughs) And now the contradictions are being exposed. And yeah, it's kind of like backed us all into this corner because the way this And I don't know, like, I'm not a political scientist, although I studied some political science, but it's just a really hard position to be in now. And we need to, this is something that we're gonna have to grapple with as a human race. Yeah,
2: absolutely.
0: Yeah. And I think that that rise of nationalism, like, as you pointed out, Aisha, is like, it's that tension, it's like rising and it's showing up as nationalism, Mm -hmm. that pressure. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good place to leave it. We've brought all of the problems to the table, solved
1: none of them. Let's get him.
0: <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> we served you a meal of problems, <laughs> listeners. So now you can go away and solve them on your own.
3: Alhamdulillah, oh, it's been so great chatting with you guys. Um, I'm so glad we we got around to it. Thank you so much for having us. Oh, it's our pleasure.
2: Alhamdulillah.
0: <laughs> yeah, as we close, we just wanted to, you know, to, to leave everyone on a more positive note. Like, is there anything that you're
2: working on right now that you're really excited to share with the world? One thing I do want to give a shout out to is like, um, that we started an intern program for the first time um, this past season um, and it has just been like it's very eye-opening because it's our first time running something like this but I love it so much for the same reason that I, I love speaking to you guys because like I love meeting kindred spirits in the form mm-hmm. of like Muslim sisters across the world who um, are on the same wavelength, who have the same concerns and who are willing to again, like it starts with a conversation, but then it leads to people acting and doing things in like their own personal context that inshallah lead to like real world change. So I just, I want to give a shout out to our interns because they're really wonderful people <laughs> and they've, they've taught us a lot. And um, I just love seeing that form of growth, like amongst Muslim women. I love seeing other women start their own projects, you know, with like similar goals in mind or who are tackling like a different aspect of the problems that we're talking about. So yeah, I, I just really appreciate being able to... To speak to you guys and to meet you.
1: It's been such a privilege. And I feel like I've learned so much. (laughs) Like I'm not a political scientist. Me neither. Like (laughs) I'm not the politics person here. So it's been so interesting to listen to you, all three of you bouncing these amazing ideas <laughs> off each other and I'm just like that's so
2: interesting I hadn't thought of it that way before <laughs> so, yeah. the thing about Muslims is that like we all have to become politics people at some point like you can't run away from it yeah that's so, right. very true yeah. that's thanks to the war on terror <laughs>
1: politicized us for good <laughs> we're having this conversation because of 9 I guess we can be grateful to george bush for one thing yeah no i refuse to be
0: grateful for (laughs) for anything (laughs) did you like how i had to wash my
1: mouth out after i said
3: that (laughs) yes i mean on that note things i'm excited about uh given that we did kind of go into the kind of world of international politics a little bit uh a project that i'm a part of that launched recently um that i was grateful alhamdulillah to um, have been a part of is uh, a project called the Omatics Colloquium. It uh, sounds incredibly uh, nerdy. Fancy.
0: <laughs> but we like nerdy things around here. We're yeah, the biggest yeah. nerds.
3: so. <laughs> but essentially, it's a, a project um, that has been organized by a group of Muslim academics, where they are trying to push some of the boundaries of islamic social and political imagination as you guys were talking about and what you literally said at the end um anisa about how uh you know the nation-state model look at what it has led to and particularly you know in the developing world in the global south where you know you were just saying about how when there's different groups of people forced under one identity, you know, it's, it's it's no coincidence to me that the most successful nation states are ones where the people tend to be of a homogenous identity. But where people were stuffed into these nations overnight, or after a very long struggle, got independence hasn't worked as well. Anyway, without going back into that conversation, if we are going to start thinking about alternatives for the future, as Muslims, obviously, for us, that stems from our understanding of our Islamic worldview, and what we know Islam has to say about social and political life and this project was started by a group of Muslim academics and they have quarterly seminars on issues to do with this and they also invite article submissions from other interested researchers or commentators um, to start analysing some of these issues and um, explore how we as Muslims can contribute to this conversation essentially so if anybody would be interested in looking up at that following you know this conversation it would be um yeah, they can they can try and spell colloquium
0: in, in yeah. Google. <laughs> <laughs> so can you send us the link for that and we'll yes, put it in the show yes. notes? <laughs> I will. I
1: will. And speaking of looking things up on the internet, if people want to look up you and uh, the Karawin Project on the internet, where can they find you both? All three of
3: you. Uh, so <laughs> um, I don't think we're too active on social. Sarah is not on any socials anymore, mashallah. Peace Good does. job. Well done. I'm <laughs> there. Job. I'm just not like publicly active <laughs> okay.
2: anymore. But
3: yeah. <laughs> um, but our Karawin Project, um, the website is uh, karawinproject.co and our facebook is you're stateless <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes yes well observed i'm sure it's my
0: design <laughs> <laughs> oh,
3: I'm, well, that's what i'll be saying now but i just thought co sounded cooler than com more co. Co. yeah yes. yeah okay actually this is confession there was an influencer who i followed who had her website as co. so when i was buying it i was like guys what domain do you think this one looks cool we'll do this one <laughs> But um, anyway, our Facebook is The Qarween Project and Instagram and Twitter are at Qarween Proj. We'll
0: give you guys the links. Yes. Yes. And we will share those with you all. And where can people find us, Khadija?
1: They can find us on Twitter at MipsPod, M-I-P-S-P-O-D.
0: And you can email us at musliminplainsight at gmail.com. And you can subscribe to the podcast on your podcast app or
1: go to musliminplainsight.com. And, that's, and it. that's it. JazakAllah khair for
2: joining us. It was amazing. This was beautiful.
0: Yeah. I loved
2: meeting you. Yeah, same. Alhamdulillah. As-salamu alaykum. for having us. Thanks for having us.